Blade Runner, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Tron, Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, John Carpenter is the Thing, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And what do all these movies have in common? Well, you know, they all came out in 1982. And for the past four decades, we've been watching these movies over and over again. But as we are about to discover, watching them was only the beginning. My name is Scott Mance, and I'm a film critic or as I like to call it, a film enthusiast. I'm a fan, and I am so excited to announce the start of a campaign so we can start filming a documentary called 1982 Greatest Geek Gear Ever. We're going to be bringing you an in-depth, fascinating, and totally gonzo look at the greatest geek year ever. 1982. We're going to be traveling the globe, interviewing the stars, the filmmakers, and the super fans. So support us and help us by going to our Indiegogo campaign. And as an incentive, I hope you'll check out some of the great backers rewards so you can help us get to the finish line and we can all party like it's 1982. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with Steve Melching, Darren Docterman, Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The only on way to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is right. to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. <laughs> Coming right. soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. <laughs> Ash wow. Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. A deadly addiction to a mind implant. It was designed to stimulate the pleasure centers of my brain. How long has it been on? Two years. Threatens Bashir's Cardassian friend. Garrick's body has undergone a severe shock. Leaving it in could drive him insane. Get away from me! But removing it could kill him. He's dying. Then you should let him die. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Hi, this is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Klink. We are back in the briefing room for another exclusive podcast commentary of Star Trek. 
Today, we are joined by a very special guest. He's a writer on Deep Space Nine and one of the architects of the Dominion. Robert Hewitt Wolf is here. How are you doing hey today, sir? Uh, doing great. Doing great. This will be exciting. Um, you chose an episode from season two, uh, episode 22, called The Wire. Um, I always like to ask before we get started, uh, what, uh, what made you pick this one? Uh, I don't think I've ever done a commentary on it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of the episodes people ask me the most about, so... I figured it was it was worth uh, worth doing this one. Um, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I've done I've done ones on this on like past tense is another one people ask me about a lot. Um, but I did that for uh, for Ciroc's, uh podcast. I did that one, and I also did Homefront and Paradise Lost with them. So those are sort of the biggies as far as what ones people talk to me about all the time or ask me about a lot. Uh, Way of the Warrior too, but I figured yeah, mm-hmm. let's do the Wire. Why not? It's a also, it's, it's, it's only one hour instead of two. Um, <laughs> That's a plus. Bite-sized. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've, I've always been very proud of this episode. It, it, uh, I think it's one of my better solo credits. Although, obviously, I mean, the staff and Ira especially um, had a lot to do with it, too. But, but this one is mine of record. So. Awesome. Did this come from a pitch, or was it an original idea of yours? This was an original idea of mine. Yeah. Uh, I had originally actually pitched it for Kira to be the Garrick character. And that she had basically uh, gotten addicted to um, essentially like Bajoran meth when she was in the resistance. Mm -hmm. Because um, based on like history, like, you know, the German army used a lot of meth in World War II and the assassins are named the assassins because they smoked a lot of hash. Hmm. So, so I thought it would be cool to sort of say that Kira had used these sort of maybe like reflex enhancing alertness pushing drugs when she was in the resistance and become addicted to them and had been hiding that, that addiction. And, uh, and then Bashir would help her get off of that. And the, the initial response, I think from Michael but it may have been from Rick, was that we can't have one of our main characters be an addict. That was just like off limits. And so I sort of noodled around with the story a little more. And then I came up with the idea that it could be Garrick uh, who was using something to compensate for being in exile. And that the, the sort of helping him through withdrawal that Bashir would do would also be about who he was and all the lies he tells. And whether there was any truth in those lies or not. And I pitched that to Ira and that that flew. So that's basically how it all came about. Nice. Yeah, it's a great character episode for both of those characters. Yeah, that's what I was going for. I mean, honestly, I, I also knew we needed a bottle show or a bottle-ish show. Yeah. And so I figured, you know, that, you know, it, there's a there's a long and 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 I think good tradition of of stories of people trying to come off of heroin usually and being <laughs> stuck in a room with someone else who's trying to help them get off heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the most original, like, you know, it's not like it's never been done before. And I, I can't remember, I can't remember any specific examples of it that I was thinking of back then at the time, but I know there's a zillion of them. And there's a, there was a book I read that had, had that, like a sequence of that that was about like, circus performers in the 30s or something and there's a young kid who gets stuck on who gets hooked on heroin and this old circus hand who helps him get off of it and i have no idea what that book was anymore i can't remember that title anymore 
Um, but then there's also like, you know, Man with a Golden Arm. There's a, there's a lot of like, and then every, a lot of TV shows in the 60s and like the 70s and did it. And Green Arrow did it with Speedy. Uh, um, sure. uh, Speedy got hooked on heroin. Um, and so, you know, I, I just thought it would be kind of a, a fun thing to do for our characters, but also as it developed, it was a really good way to get into uh, Garrick's backstory. And then also to really show Bashir, like shine a light on him as a doctor. And as a friend, and um, so that that was the that was the idea. Right. right. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Great. So, again, for the listeners out there, we are watching uh, season two, episode twenty-two, called "The Wire." So we will do a countdown, and we will get into it. All right. Three, two, one, and play. Hey, the promenade. The, the largest, most expensive standing set at the time in history. Beautiful set. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. The culture that refuses to even acknowledge the concept of time, though I must say they make You said it was a bottle episode, but I find it so interesting because there's always so many extras on Deep Space Nine just yeah. by definition. And so it's a uh, bottle ish. Yes. <laughs> it must still have been a lot of work for, for Michael Westmore and the uh, yeah. team. Uh, Isn't it superb? Oh, the never-ending sacrifice. Novel ever what was the uh, logic behind that? Because there is a, an explanation for what Cardassian uh, literature is like. What was going through your head? It was to show the contrast between Cardassian culture and human culture. The idea that, like, Cardassian novels are kind of like this kind of weird version of Russian novels where, where there's... Um, you know, they're very long and they're very detailed... And they and they sort of drive home the idea of service to the state, which is which gives us sort of like gives us gives us Garrick's um, gives us Garrick's sort of cultural grounding right when we start. I'm definitely reminded too of like the the Foresight Saga or things like that, where it's just this continuing family drama where everyone is kind of doomed to repeat the same mistakes. Yeah, that's part of the inspiration for it. You know, I think I was also thinking of like War and Peace, probably a little sure. bit. Sure. Um, but but yeah, the just this whole also the stories repeat over and over again, which is a theme of the episode, right? It says it's like every generation repeats the same story over and over again. And one of the things that Garrick does in this episode is he repeats the same story over and over again. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's a little bit of foreshadowing to that. That's great. It's also cool, too, because um, I think Deep Space Nine does this a lot in the sense of it, they, they point out Federation... Um, uh, the kind of hubris that the Federation has. And Garrick's talking about this right here is how like the Federation is sanctimonious and just so up their own, you know, um, uh, moral code and things like that. And TNG kind of has that approach of like, we're the best and everyone respects that. But Deep Space Nine really gets into more of the weeds of, of the galaxy and it's so cool. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that we wanted to always give all our cultures their due, you know? I think that that was part of what we were going for was the idea that that um, that that the Klingons and the Cardassians and the and eventually the Dominion, all of these cultures should have their own. Um, <laughs> that was the Nas only line for the entire thing. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was to give her her residuals. Um, yeah. 
But the idea is that we we always wanted to kind of give the devil their due in in the in the show, like and 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 to you know to say the devil is almost the wrong thing to say, but but the idea that all these cultures had validity beyond that that the Federation wasn't the only point of view, and that everybody else had their own culture, had their own point of view. It had some validity. It worked for them. And even mm-hmm. though we may look at it as outsiders and go like, this is crazy. It all works for the Cardassians. You know, it, the Ferengi society works for the Ferengi. The Jemadars, you know, live out their roles and don't really question them. And, and it all works for them. So that was one of our sort of recurring themes in the show. Mm-hmm. I love the main titles. Yeah. I, you know, this is something that shows just don't do anymore. Um, it's true. And yeah, all those cool. pretty French horns. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is pre, this is the, the slower version, which I actually, I still prefer. Uh, the yeah. more martial version from, when did we start that? Season three? Season four. Season four, I think. Anyway, the more martial version with more drums and more drive is cool and everything, but I just like the lyrical kind of like, feel of this um, this sequence mm-hmm. Rewatching it again the other day I, I was surprised by it because I think I had just gotten used to the more martial version as you call it um, from, you, know, you get used to that when you're watching it later on and I was like oh right it was a different sort of main title here yeah and no defiant and uh, yeah this is all like pre-Dominion War stuff so oh there yeah it's like a runabout you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like there's that that the guys aren't out there working on the station. It's it, it, the, the 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 re. I like the the visuals of the revamped title sequence, yep. and I like the music, but I, I love that too. Did you ask Professor O'Brien? <laughs> Here we have Dax too. It's it's interesting because this episode you have you have. Uh, Major Kira, you have Commander Cisco coming up here soon, and Dask, they all just have like one scene and then they're they're out. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, the novel literally has one line. At least at least um at least Dax has a real scene. But again, this is just <laughs> establishing Bashir as a doctor who actually cares. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? He he it, it, it's a plant, but he's trying, you know? Yeah. So like he he, he takes this doctor stuff seriously and, and he, he wants to help. Yeah. Was there a, a mandate? Lisa, I know you wrote a, a doctor uh, medical type episode later on. Mm-hmm. Um, was there kind of a mandate with Deep Space Nine? Like, we, we should try to have more medical episodes than, um, say, TNG did. Either of you can answer that. <laughs> uh, I think it was just, you know, we always wanted to show our characters operating their area of expertise every season. So it was good to have a medical episode for Bashir. It was good to have a... Uh, an episode that was a bit of a mystery for Odo if we could manage it, a Ferengi episode. So mm-hmm. he fixes it, by the way. Uh, I forgot about that. He actually does figure out what's wrong with this plant. Yes. <laughs> He's a good doctor. <laughs> yes, of a whole variety of species. Yeah, a plant. He's not a botanist, but he figures out what was wrong with it. It yeah. needs some benevolent fungus. <laughs> he fixed he in in backstory he's he's fixed uh, he's fixed uh, O'Brien's shoulder. Brian keeps mm-hmm. O'Brien keeps dislocating his shoulder, okay. and uh, and now he's concerned about he's concerned about poor Garrick. You know what a good doctor yeah. he is. Very nice guy. Well, one of the things that you know Michael's early decision about Bashir for the show was that he should be sort of um, <laughs> abrasively naive 
in a way. Like, yeah. like that whole idea of frontier medicine. And he's a bit wide-eyed. He's flirt, he's hitting on everything that moves. By the way, he's not hitting on Dax in this scene. And part True. of the intent of this show, this episode was to show that Bashir had matured mm-hmm. while he had been in Deep Space Nine. So he's now just helping Dax with the plant. They're friends. They're not, there's no, he doesn't hit on her at all. Um, he's genuinely concerned. He's always been a good doctor, but he's he's open to the new culture. He's not just like kind of this colonial federation guy coming up and saying like the federation society is all there is and that's mm-hmm. what matters. And then, you know, he's genuinely trying to do his best for his patients here. Were you happy with the Bashir Garak friendship in general? I mean, I thought it was like great. It yeah, well. I thought it worked really, really well. I mean, a lot of that is because you know, it was just supposed to be a fun, colorful character he was having lunch with, and then Andy popped so well that we all realized we were going to be using him, you know, a lot yeah. more. <laughs> and then, of course, Bashir is fine. <laughs> we don't see Bashir and Quark too often, do we? No, they don't get a lot of scenes together. And it's a fun bit, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cork is, Cork is a, not a master criminal. Is one of the things that I think I always <laughs> notice when I'm rewatching these shows. Is like he's not that great at criming. Like like he got overheard in this meeting when he's trying to help out Garrick. His lies are a little transparent here. He's just trying to bribe him to go away. Literally offering him booze and a, a little uh, a little private session in the hall suite, which clearly. We all know what goes on in those. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I love there's a there's some memes that go around every once in a while about the differences between Deep Space Nine and Next Generation, and it always comes down to like the hollow suites are for. <laughs> I'm not going to use the word, but it's, you know, yeah, they're not I doing Robin that. Hood adventures. I love that little <laughs> shot there that was almost out of frame, but it was Quark kind of like does the hand gesture over the earlobes. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I like he just helped. He more more like um, more more medical. Like he helps out. That's it. You know, he helps out Cisco uh, with a little issue, little stress issue, a little neck. I think he he threw his neck out yelling in an admiral. Or something. <laughs> so that's pretty great. Just as you do, <laughs> as you do. So great. And then yeah, this is like um, weirdly like this episode is also a bit of a mystery, right? Yep. And, and this is kind of a procedural step where Bashir is like trying to access old medical files. He's he's following Garrick. He's doing like little detective work. What's all this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the Odo subplot too because Odo does turn on that directing um, yeah. investigator hat for a little yeah. while, which is great. Yeah. Surprise. I apologize for my outburst. God, Andrew Robinson deserves so many awards for this episode. Oh, man. Fantastic. He's just yeah. he's spectacular. He's a spectacular actor. And, and and Andy's one of these guys who, you know, his first big notorious role was such a huge breakout, but it also typecast him. And he and playing the killer in Dirty Harry. And it was really hard for him to get other kind of work because people just reacted to him that way. And so he's just like one of these guys, like great actor that wasn't being utilized that we were lucky enough to, to find. It was kind of like Louise Fletcher or Mark Alimo. There were, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of these actors that were became 
that became regular or not regulars, but regularly recurring for us were just like it was a combination of character and and actor, you know, mm-hmm. and the combination of Garrick and Andy was like perfect, you know. Yeah. And he's quite threatening in this episode too. Like for the oh, first yeah. time, I think in the show, where it's like, oh, Garrick might just kill someone right now, and like in this scene, especially, yeah. it's like, wow, yeah. he just turns it on so well. Yeah. Yeah, and you, I mean, you kind of believe him when he talks about all these horrible things that he did in his past. You actually would not put it past him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, not to jump the punchline, but, you know, it's all true, especially the lies. Yeah. And part of the truth is that Garrick is a really dangerous dude who did some horrible stuff. Yeah. What the specifics of that were, you know, which of those stories are real or which aren't, who knows? But at the end of the day, like, the emotional content of them is real. And yeah. what they say about him as a person is real. And that's that's the idea. Well, it was a question I wanted to ask, too, because at some point in the writer's room, was it ever discussed, like, what is actually Garrick's history? Or was it always just even for you guys left kind of ambiguous? It was always even for us left ambiguous. I mean, I think as I was writing these these big speeches that he has later, and also, you know, when Ira, and Ira came in and, and we did a lot of work on them together, too, it, the idea was always that we would never tell the audience the truth of which was real and which was not. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, we sort of put ourselves in the audience's position to a certain extent. And and Garrick is recurring at the end of the day. He's not one of us. Bashir is us. And at the end of the day, Bashir doesn't know. Yeah. And so we don't really know. Although, look, later some of it, is confirmed, yes. you know, that some of the Tain stuff and obviously the fact that Elam is his first name, that is fact, you know, that comes out. That's nothing he ever says, but it's fact mm-hmm. <laughs> that does come out of his stories. Um, yeah, here's Odo as investigator. Yeah. <laughs> One of the fun, he, he just listens. He has no warrant. He just listens to everything that Quark says. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a little bit of a... He's a little bit of a fascist, let's be honest. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that that I is sort of fun for me personally is that um, when I was up for the job on um, elementary, this wasn't an issue for um, Rob or Craig, who kind of knew me, but there was sort of this feeling at CBS like, has this guy ever written, this guy's never really written mysteries before. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I, I've written mysteries. They were just on Deep Space Nine, you know? We did a bunch of mysteries on Deep Space Nine, and I did several of them. And there's a little mystery procedural aspect to this. Oh, certainly. Technology. Well, that shouldn't be too difficult. Here's Quark, once again, playing the pimp card, basically, <laughs> to get what he wants. But I've got the requisition. This is also the first mention in Star Trek as a whole of the Obsidian Order, which is the... Uh, secret police, so to speak, of, of Cardassian. Um, yeah. How did that come about? Was it kind of always in the cars and you just played it here? Or was it... Uh... Well, there was always the implication that Garrick was a spy, right? And so in order for that to play, we needed it to be like, um, he needs to work for a spy agency, you know? Sure. Sure. <laughs> and so we needed to come up with what agency that was. And... Um, and so I just sort of sat down and tried to come up with an idea for what the, what they would call their equivalent to the KGB, essentially. 
And I, I sort of always thought it would be like the KGB in that it would they would spy on other people, but they would also spend a lot of energy spying on themselves yeah, because that absolutely. just seemed like the Orwellian type of fascists that they kind of are. Yeah. Um, I love this bit. This guy is like, oh, you, you stepped in something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, reinforcing just, that Jack Clark may not be the, the cleverest. Who are they? They're the ever-vigilant eyes and ears of the Cardassian Empire. It is said that <laughs> it's so great. It's great. This guy's like, oh man, I'm about to step into a Kafka novel. <laughs> Whether you agree with their goals or not, you can't help. And this is the yeah, first time. Yeah, with audience. The first time we ever hear it. Even the Romulan Tal Shiar can't compete with them when it comes to intent. <laughs> so Bohica is an in-joke because Bohica is military slang for bend over, here it comes again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like, basically, this, that's what happens to this guy. He gets caught up in the bureaucracy and the, and the, and the stuff that just invariably like blows up on, on like these sort of poor mid-level officers, right? And that's sort of what the slang is all about. The bohica basically means that, like, the military nonsense is about to hit you hard. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's where bohica comes from. So that's why his name is. I think very few people, <laughs> very few people uh, got that joke. But probably most of the probably. active duty military people got it or, or veterans got it. Uh, anyway, so coming up with the sitting order, I, I was thinking of them as a KGB. I was trying to come up with a name. My original name for them was the Gray Order because I just thought that they were just the people who work in the world of shades of gray and where sure. you can't nail them sure. down. And I wanted it to be kind of obscure. And then I found out that I wasn't watching Babylon 5, but then I found out someone told me, I might have been an assistant, that there was a gray council on yeah. the on a, on Battlestar, not Battlestar, Babylon 5. I, I have no idea what the gray council is. But at the time, we were being compared to them a lot. And I was like, well, we if they have a great council, we can't have a great order. So then I just kept playing with other, like, looking up synonyms for dark or black or inky <laughs> or whatever. And I came up with obsidian order, and I thought that had a really nice ring to it. It's hard. It's, it's opaque. It's, you know, mm -hmm. obsidian can be filed to a sh very sharp edge, and the Aztecs used to... Um, uh, take put embedded into their wooden clubs to make them into sort of almost like cutting blades, like swords, and they would make mm. daggers and stuff out of it. So it it it's, it can be weaponized, and so that's why uh, why obsidian. Yeah. And now here's Orgaric trying to deal with his. It's a very oppressive sounding name too. It's it's, it it's yeah. so much more menacing than than gray order. <laughs> well, gray order was sort of I was going for the sort of like the gray men who just Absolutely. do little gray right. things and suddenly people die, you know. Um, which you know, I, I always I feel like the probably the best model for the the Cardassians is the East German communist regime, you know, where everyone is always spying on everybody. And yep. it was just a bunch of the Stasi were like, not, they were just bureaucrats who would just murder you. And it was just because <laughs> they'd filled out, someone had filled out the right paperwork, you know, yeah. and it was all done in triplicate. And that just seems like the way that the, the obsidian order and the Cardassians would generally work. Yeah. Not your pride I'm worried about. It's that implant you're carrying around inside your head. It's a dark turn here because Garrett's about to kill himself. He's just yeah. like, yep, well, that's it. 
Yeah, yeah this is the first time Bashir stops someone from committing suicide, but it's not the last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't have plot lines like that on Voyager. <laughs> no, <laughs> we were able to go darker places. I don't know how we got away with it sometimes. Um, but like this episode, well, first of all, remember, like, the initial impetus for me was to have this be Kira. And that was that was a line we could not cross. Later, right. with you know, four years later, we could get O'Brien to this point. Um, but in season two, we 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 couldn't go there with a regular. We had to use a guest. We had to use a guest character. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's part of me that still like I love this episode and I love how it come, came out. But there's still part of me that wishes it had been Kira. Just sure. a little tiny part of me would want... I bet that would have been a great episode, too. Like, this is spectacular. I, I, I'm very proud of this episode. I think it's one of my better ones. Um, but yeah, I think that Cure episode could have been pretty damn good, too. Yeah. He wouldn't have lied as much, obviously. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, too, like, how... Um, in the writing process for this, you talked about how it initially was Kira, but but what were some of the other plot lines or ideas that you toyed around with that uh, had to be uh, either refined or, or um, abandoned altogether? Well, I got to be honest. I think it was really those two. Mm, like, okay. And the Kira one never went beyond concept. It was literally just like a pitch. It was maybe gotcha. like yeah, yeah. not even written out that much. Yeah. Um, the idea with the Kira one was that we would basically discover that, you know, that she'd been hooked on this stuff, but it was also helping her not think about the things that she'd done, you know, so we could have gotten to her guilt. Yeah. Um, and it would have been much more about that. It would have been much more about specifically the guilt. Uh, this is his thing about how like the station sucks for him, right? It's too yeah. cold. It's too bright. And, and one of the things I wanted to remind people of was that Garrick is an alien, right? Yeah. He's not human. He he likes it hot and dark. You know, he, his people grew up on a different planet. It's nothing like this. They changed all the air conditioning settings and he hates it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the only one, right? He's the yeah. only Cardassian here. And everybody, a lot of people here hate him. Yeah. You know, and so he turned on the device that helps him resist torture and he never turned it off because living on the station is torturous to him. Yeah. So this is also a very long scene, but you don't really think about it. It it, it traverses so much ground and it's fantastic. Um this was directed the first episode directed by uh Kim Friedman, I believe was yeah. her name. Um, yeah. what was it like working with her? This Well the truth is like as a writer, especially a junior level writer on Star Trek, and least so can attest to this. You didn't work that closely with the directors. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, production was really the 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 show was kind of siloed off in this weird way, and that like the writers were in the in their little in the heart building pumping out scripts, and that's it. That's pretty much what we did, you know. Yep. And then everything else was sort of under Rick, and he didn't he he wasn't super open to writers showing up on set and talking to directors and things like that. We were involved with casting, so that was cool. Yeah. Um, 
And we would look at cuts, especially when they were long and offer cuts and adjustments and things like that. But never with the editors. We would always do it by ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we would go down to set when we were needed, but it was really about that. So now here's the first big lie. <laughs> this is not true. He was never a gull. Shattered too many of your illusions. If you're going to make yeah, it a lie, you might as well uh, give yourself a good title. <laughs> true. Yeah. So, so something happened. Something happens yeah. with with Bajoran prisoners. That is pretty much side effects you may experience. I promise this is probably mostly not true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what's true. He did kill some he did kill some people he wished he didn't kill. Mm. And he feels like in that course of doing that, he killed Elam. He killed a part of himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And something, maybe to do with that incident, maybe not, resulted in his exile. Mm. Or not. Mm. <laughs> like that, <laughs> <laughs> maybe none of that is true. Maybe this is, the, maybe this is the true story. Maybe none of the things that I just said are true. But except that, at some point, he did feel like Elon died. And I think that that's, that's true. That is true. The patient's cranial implant. Inform me if it shows any. Signs. Well, like you said, it's it's emotionally true that there is there is some some kind of emotional accord that that he's hitting here. I love what Kim did here with them facing each other and having this in a big long take, single yeah. take. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. And. It finally, finally, Garrick lets Bashir. Maybe help. This is a really strong warner. This is a nice warner, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really hard on the actors. It's it's they, they, you know it's basically a play, and both of these guys had to base had to memorize a tremendous amount of material. Um, and Sid didn't memorize things ahead of time. No. Oh, really? <laughs> Not that I know of. He did it right before the scene. He was wow. he's amazing at it. Um. I think it's part of his Rada training or something. He's really good at memorizing things, and he would sort of do it. But look at the, I mean, he's like dance dialogue that he had to get down. And it was, oh, yeah. He got it down word perfect. I find that there's a lot of, that's something that like people who've tra- classically trained in theater, especially Brits who went to Rada or whatever, like Johnny, Johnny Lee Miller could do this stuff too. It was, yeah. it's, it's very impressive. I'm not sure where he trained or where he went to school for acting, but obviously. He learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and now now Oda's on his track, which is I've got a KGB, you know, a former KGB agent. I, yeah. I wanna I wanna <laughs> grill him, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like seeing Bashir stand up to Odo. I mean, it really kind of strengthens his character that, you know, he may be naive, but he's not a pushover. Not when it comes to medicine. Yeah. Matt, that was the thing that was part of what I really wanted to show in this episode, which is that Bashir, while sometimes naive and sometimes awkward and all those other things, he is a really good doctor. Yeah. And that was something that I thought it was important to show. And I don't think we'd really had the opportunity to go this far into him as a doctor. And that's really what we were aiming for in this episode. Yeah. I love the 
the line that that you draw here, which is that Bashir, he doesn't really, I mean, he cares, but he doesn't, he's going to protect Garrett's life because that is um, his job as a doctor. That's it. He, he has to make sure that his patient stays alive. And it's such an interesting line. I think today we kind of become inundated with the, the doctor who will kill the bad guy or something like that, you know, the anti-hero move. And and it's yeah. nice and really refreshing to be like, yeah, the doctor is going to be a doctor and and save his patient's life no matter what the patient has done. Yes. Yeah. When, when push comes to shove, I think that that's, you know, people, there's all those online debates, like if you're going to have one, of, if you want one of the doctors on Star Trek to treat you, who would it be, you know? And, mm -hmm. and people can argue different ways. And look, obviously, like, you know, they're all great doctors, like every single one of them. Pulaski's a good doctor even, but yeah. Bones, <laughs> Crush, I mean, all of them, the, you know, the, the, the emergency, you know, the emergency hologram, all of them. But at the end of the day, I feel like Bashir is the one who, who becomes the most invested in his patients in a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and is the guy who's going to go the extra yard, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they all would, but I just feel like Bashir just like, this episode just shows how far he's willing to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much all the way, you know? Yeah. Same thing, Hippocratic Oath, which is the episode that, that Lisa wrote, right? Uh, Hippocratic, Hippocratic Oath, yeah. Yeah, Hippocratic Oath and um, uh, the quickening. Mm -hmm. You know, when we do show him, Elim and I were interrogating five they were one of the other things we also wanted to do with each of these big scenes with Garrick is put him in a different emotional state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in this state, this is his anger time. You know, this is his yeah. most angry least vulnerable this is true also true what <laughs> <laughs> well, makes it so insidious is that every once in a while it is a true thing and so it's kind of hard to you can't just say he lies 100% it's like 90% a lot of this is true mm -hmm. you know this, this obsidian order backstory there's nothing wrong with that no Andy became a really good director too. He directed one of my episodes on Voyager, and I thought it turned yeah. out really well. And he has a theater company. He's 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 definitely like very much about his craft. It's amazing the emotions he brings through that. Yeah, and look how Kim's directing this again. Like, there's no cuts in here. No. Yeah. It's just Andy. Like, this is a oneer. And that's the worst part. I can't believe that I actually enjoy he, like this whole establishing like how he hates the Bajorans and how fucking I said it was yeah, I shouldn't say that word, but I curse on here all the time, it's fine. That's okay. <laughs> now wonder, man. Kim Kim did so many of these scenes as wonders, right? This is a wonder, uh -huh. it's it's amazing. And such good use of like shadow and effect. I mean, it's very yeah. much like a, a noir shot here. Yeah. I mean, the whole well, series I, is, but like this one in particular. It makes sense too, because like this is how Garrick likes his quarters, right? Yeah. Right. Hot and hot and dark. <laughs> I gotta think the actors just eat this stuff up. I mean, this must have been Andy's favorite day. He was he, there. Yeah. Is, is that the first cut? I'm not sure. <laughs> 
but yeah, Andy Andy has subsequently told me that he's he he this is one of his favorite pieces of acting that he's ever done. Yeah. And that makes me feel really um it's gratifying to hear that as a writer. Yeah, certainly. Um to know that we we were able to give him this kind of opportunity. Yeah. This was one of the episodes that was trans that not the whole thing, but they had clips of it transferred for uh, to HD for the documentary release. And God, is it just show how much the whole series needs an HD release? Because yeah, uh, it would be nice. It was beautiful. Now it all like bring back sample thirty five. Superimpose the molecular structure of this leukocyte with an analogous sample taken from yesterday. Oh, <laughs> not good. <laughs> Raising stakes. <laughs> Yes. That must be what's causing the accumulation of toxins in his system. Can we synthesize Cardassian leukocytes? Probably, but that could take weeks. We don't have that much time. We have three. It's interesting how in in sick bay, uh, Bashir's nurses are appear to be Bajoran, at least the the one lady. And so yeah. it kind of reminds you, you know, when Garrick was saying all the Bajorans hate me, you know, she has to treat him. Yeah. I never want that thing. Well, he's got he's got a little bit of both, right? Yeah, it's I think a, so. It's a hybrid. That was a Starfleet guy right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know, again, we're trying to keep alive the idea that this isn't this isn't Starfleet. You know, he's not got the full resources of a of a you know of an enterprise in his back with a full medical team. He's kind of he's got like some, some Federation nurse and a Bajoran nurse, and that's that's what he's got. Yeah. Carefully, Elim wasn't my aide. He was. More of a mystery plot. Yeah, yeah. This is the medical investigation. This is like this is this is Bashir as house. Yeah. <laughs> you guys didn't have a medical advisor or anything, did you? The goals feared us. Well, I feel like we must have, because I don't know how I would have written any of this that just happened. <laughs> like I think we must have had somebody for this episode. Or the tech advisor who, who who did the tech talk um, helped us with farmed it out, you know. Mm-hmm. He couldn't protect me, so I panicked. I did everything in my power to make sure that Elam. So this is Garrett. Number like, three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Evidence, only to discover that he'd beaten me to it. But again, you can tell there's some emotional truth going on here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Bashir. Don't don't try to learn the truth from him. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony is I deserved it. Or not for the reasons they claimed. Now season two, it's talked about how you guys were developing the Dominion at the time on like your lunch breaks and things like that. I mean, by this point, episode twenty-two, um, where were you guys at in terms of like figuring out what the series was going to be and how the Cardassians especially would fit into that? I mean, we were certainly discussing it. I think we we hadn't completely landed on it, but we would have been talking and circulating, um, you know, circulating ideas and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I don't think we'd come up with all the mechanics of like the Klingons and the Cardassians and uh, how all that was going to work, how the sides would flip. Um, 
and this is but he is a Elon. <laughs> Did he frame himself? Why would he do that? I don't understand this one. <laughs> and then Elon frame me. <laughs> Why? Yeah. What? It's all. <laughs> the best of lies when even the person writing the truth doesn't know what it is. <laughs> yes. I mean, again, this is an emotional truth. Yes. Mm -hmm. Garrick. I believe that Garrick is a man very much at war with himself. Yes. It's not as it's not as overt as like Smeagol and Gollum, right? Yeah. But in a way, Elam is Smeagol and Garrick is Gollum. Yeah. You know, Elam is the better part of Garrick's nature, and Garrick is the the manipulative, dangerous. You know, um, conniving Machiavellian side, and part of what this episode is about is him reconciling those two parts of himself and coming to accept them both in a way, and and in a weird way, like finding Elam again. You know, so now Bashir's on on a crusade; he's off to find an Avantain or Elam, or whoever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th there's, you know, this is about him trying to sort of reconcile his id and his his superego, I suppose, in some ways, you know? Mm -hmm. With with Garrick being the id and Elam being the superego, if you want to go to those sort of Freudian terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. I would argue that, that Elam is really the one who's friends with Bashir. Yeah, I think that that's valid. Although I think Garrick takes an interest in teaching Bashir things. Yeah. So the sort of, like, there's that too. Like, the sort of, none of it is as clean as, as obviously, none of it's clean. You know, I, yeah. I, and I think that's one of the things I like about the character and I like about this episode is at the end of the day, it's all very... It's all very blurry, but like our own lives are blurry. It's not like I walk around thinking about Robert and Wolf as two different people, you know. <laughs> um, I would never articulate things that way or even think about it and superego and ego and all that other kind of stuff. Um, but it feels real, you know. It's, mm -hmm. And that's why we never articulated it that way because I don't think people articulate it that way, you know. Yeah. And I think... Do we even know the truth of everything that happened to us, or do we just have the memories? This is this is a nice little bit. I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> Anabertain knows who Bashir is and knows like what he drinks. Yeah, it's it's nice, nice little bit. This actor here was Paul Dooley, who had been uh, in Sixteen yeah. Candles previously. Yeah, the dad. Um, mm -hmm. Also, my personal favorite uh, Sesame Street movie called Don't Eat the Pictures, which <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, were you involved with the casting of this? or uh, is it? Uh, I can't remember how, if Dooley auditioned or not, to be honest. And he was the only piece of guest casting in the episode, really, yeah. Yeah. except for the nurse. So I can't remember, Yeah, <laughs> to be honest. 
I love I how Michael Westmore to show the agent of a Cardassian, he kind of puts more like scaly spots on on the head, which I'm like, yeah, oh, um, cool. Westmore's cool. a genius, man. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Tough, tough makeup to wear sometimes. I bet. But mm-hmm. God, the design is so smart all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a lovely sentiment. And it's from the heart, I assure you. He would go on to be a recurring character for the series. So it's. Uh, yeah, he was on. Four episodes, maybe? Blue four, yeah. Blue four. Three or four? Um, a member of the Obsidian Order. I was wondering what happened to him. Can he give you the name of this friend? And so, yeah, I mean, look. At the end of the day, it's pretty clearly implied that, that Tain is his father, right? Yeah. Like, by the time this is all said and done, that is something we kind of know to be true. But this was something we were already thinking about in this... That he was, he's, he's Tane's illegitimate son. That, mm-hmm. that, I think, was something we had already landed on, you know? I'll be sure to give him the message. It's so interesting, too, that he, um, Bashir gets here with no problems. But Tane knew that Garrick was down and out and very ill. He could have just sent the information immediately, but he had to wait for someone to come to him and be like, mm-hmm. I need your help. So that way now Bashir kind of owes him one. And it feels yeah. very much like this is a deep spy move type thing. Like it's it's mm-hmm. about yeah. what you other people can do for you. It's not about what you yeah. can do for other people. That's oh, very cool. I mean, Tane is a liar too, right? And yeah. he's also a little bit of a spider sitting in his... He and... Garrick, you know, Garrick betrayed him in in some some way. So he doesn't want to kill him because he's his son, but he does want him to suffer. <laughs> I think that's true. Perfectly fine. So, how's the Idanian spice pudding today? How's the spice pudding? Is that all you have to say for yourself? How can you just sit there and pretend that the last 10 days never happened? I, for one, Doctor, am perfectly satisfied with the way things turned out. And I, I also feel like this is a bit of a turning point episode for Bashir. He kind of, uh, he grows so much over the course of, this, of the series as a whole. And, and season mm-hmm. two is a big turning point for him. It gets a bit more comfortable, a bit less um, naive, as you say. And, and it's, uh, I like this one a lot. That's a nice reaction shot from Sid. The way they cut it. Yeah. You know, he has no line, but he gets a really good reaction to that, mm-hmm. which is terrific edit, terrific editing, which I had nothing to do with. And again, like Kim, Kim did such a great job with the episode. Yeah. The direction is really, really assured and smart. Mm-hmm. At this point, how how well did you develop plans for Bashir's character? I mean, to, to be ultimately revealed as being genetically enhanced and all that. That wasn't in our head at all, to be honest. I, I think that came up as a pitch and we just liked it. Um, yeah. No, but the thing that we had always thought, and it was it's very clearly implied, it's very clearly implied by the, um, how Michael set him up that this was going to be a character that would grow from being a, a, a sort of a naive youth to a fully matured Starfleet officer. Like that was really going to be his, that was really going to be his arc. And that was. Even the lies, especially the lies. (laughs) 
what I love about this is that Garrick is kind of right. Like, yeah, the, the week was bad, but it doesn't really do anything to dwell on it. So let's yeah. just move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that, like, ultimately, like, if Garrick has a strength, that's it, right? He's, yeah. I mean, that's what he's struggling to do in this episode. He, he had been relying on the on the crutch yeah. of the the wire of the implant in his head yeah. to to survive. And to sort of move on with his life despite all his setbacks. And in a weird way, in this episode, this is the episode in which he owns that that sort of attitude on his own, you know? <laughs> Another book. Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek doesn't have cloud storage, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A future where Cardassian and the Klingon Empire are at war. Wow, who who would have seen that coming? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that we knew that we were going to do the Cardassians and the Klingons at war at this point. But maybe we did. I don't know. Or maybe saying that was part of what planted it. I don't know. Anyway, here's the big finish. We're not talking because hopefully you're watching Garrett say his big line. <laughs> and it's a great line. Yes. Uh, and I, I have to admit, like, I didn't write it that way originally. Uh-huh. I had it all as one. I had it as two exchanges. So what I had was um, Bashir says, out of all the things that you told me, which were true and which were lies... And Garrick just said they were they're all true, especially the lies. And that was it. And and Ira very wisely said, no, we gotta like play that out, let it play. Like mm-hmm. it was too fast. Yeah. And so that he was the one who made the a, a four-line exchange, you know. Uh, out of all the things you told me which were true and which were lies, everything I told you was true, even out of all the things you told me, what what was true? It was all true. I'm paraphrasing now. <laughs> uh, even the lies, especially the lies. That was Ira. Ira right. splitting yeah. those two lines up and making it into four. You know, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously, you know, he was a much more experienced. He remains a much more experienced. He'll always be a much more experienced writer than <laughs> me. Uh, but but that was really him just going like, man, take some time for this moment. Like, let it really land for the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, thank you, Ira. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of it too is is like knowing the actors could really milk that moment, and yeah. it's, exactly. it's a testament to the amazing actors that you guys had on um, Deep Space Nine. One of the things that Ira really knows, um, and that I hopefully have learned from him, is how to give actors the things that they need to do a really good job, and what's too much, and what's too little. And um, and when to trust them in those moments. For example, like Bashir doesn't say anything when Tane says the truth, right? That that Elam is his first name. Yeah. No line for Bashir. And that is Ira being confident that Sid would give a reaction and that mm-hmm. Kim would find that reaction and that the editors would place that reaction into the cut. Or if it wasn't there, that we would find it and tell them that put it in there that it would be in the footage yeah um and that was just like you know 
that came from Ira having a tremendous amount of experience, you know, doing a lot of shows before he showed up on Star Trek and being a guy who just knew how it would work and also could identify the fact that we had a spectacular cast, right? I mean, yeah. Sid's the youngest, you know, Sid and Terry are the youngest and least experienced actors in, in, the, in, the, in the show, but knowing that you could give them stuff to play like this and knowing that Andy would just nail everything, you know? Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of times where, where when we went through the speeches, a lot of what Ira was helping me do was to hone them down. Like I would have more. I think the speeches had, they were longer sure. um, originally. And a lot of what Ira was helping me do was like really kind of like both razor them down so that they were like super clean. And then um, also make sure that they were distinct from each other, you know, that they each had their own, all three, it's basically three stories he tells, right? Three, yeah, pretty much. Uh, that they each were, um, they all each had a different emotional aspect to them. They had a different energy to them. That the thrust of the story was 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 in who he blamed and who he was in who he was saving and who he was hurting was different every time. And then it all just felt like, you know, this really fun puzzle that, you know, honestly, you know the audience would never really be able to completely solve or we would never tell the audience whether they're right or not. That was the part of it. Like we always wanted the audience to be like, you could have whatever theory you want about this episode and it's just as valid as the next one, you know? Um, you know, the clues are there and you put them together the way you want. And honestly, that's kind of how we experience other people in our lives a lot of the times, right? Like, I think part of this episode is also based on my father, who was sort of an enigmatic guy who told a lot of stories about himself and did some, probably did some terrible things. And I mean, he was a Green Beret, right? My dad was in the U.S. Special Forces and he fought in Vietnam for two different tours of duty. And, um, <laughs> you know, I once asked my father if he killed anyone. And my dad said, well, it was the jungle. You couldn't really see what you were shooting at. So I don't know whether I killed anyone or not, but I sure tried to. <laughs> <laughs> and there were bodies at the other end of where my gun was. When we went to check out the, you know, when we went to count the bodies at the end, there were bodies there. Mm. So I think that that was kind of part of the inspiration for telling the story. And my father was an alcoholic who got clean. Uh, and, um, you know, he was closeted too. He was gay and closeted or bi and closeted. And so he was just a guy who I spent my whole life trying to figure out what was true and what wasn't from the stories he would tell me. Right. And so that's really where a lot of this stuff came from. Um, you know, it's just my daddy issues, right? <laughs> um, but look, I think that that's how, how we are often with our parents and our friends. Like we, we have to assemble who we think they are in our heads from the evidence that we have. I think that's why people like mysteries and the mystery elements in this story are there. Like, because we are trained to try to assemble a reality from the clues that we're presented with about other people, about the world, about how it works. And so, you know, we do our best with that. And so it's always appealing to watch a mystery 
that comes together and then the answers are there. But this is kind of a mystery that never comes together. And that's kind of more like real life. You know, there's no definitive answers at the end. Yeah. It does have a satisfying ending in a way in that, you know, we save Garrick's life, you know, and and so that, that thread resolves, which does feel satisfying, even if we don't get all the answers. And we find out he and Elam are the same person. Right. Those are the satisfying things that we discover that we, that we achieve. We save his life and, and he makes a genuine turn. He doesn't need the wire anymore. And we realize that he's both Garrick and Elam. He's both the man who killed people and the man who saved people. He's both the man that betrayed his friends and that was betrayed by his friends. He's, he's both Anabrin Tain's best and worst student, you know? Um, he's both someone that Tain was proud of and someone that was a huge disappointment. And so that's, those are truths. <laughs> you know, um, and yeah, how how close do we ever get to anyone's real truth? That, that's about as close maybe as we get. Yeah, well, and I think for Bajir too, he's grown and has a larger understanding of of who this person is, even if he doesn't know anymore. It's it's kind of like he's he's delved into that and and can well, at least have a new status quo with him. Yeah, but and part of maturing is is being able to under to like hold dichotomies in, in your head, right? Yeah. I think that Bashir, when he shows up on the station is someone who just sort of sees things sort of in black and white, right? Yeah. He's a guy who's like, the Federation is good and civilized. Outside of the Federation, it's like frontiers and bad people and barbarism, and we're here to help. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're the Federation. We're here to help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and over time he grows in his appreciation of the frontier people, you know, (laughs) the natives. (laughs) And he also grows in his understanding that the Federation has its warts and its flaws, right? And including the fact that he himself, his personal history, you know, he's a lie. Bashir himself is a lie. Yeah. So it's a great arc, you know, yeah. and I think, um, and I think Sid did it beautifully. I've talked to Sid about the character's colonial attitude, which he really enjoyed at the time. And I think still enjoys. And of course it's the irony is that Sid is like half Sudanese and half British, you know, half English. And so he, he personally, enjoys the idea that this guy has the colonial attitude, you know, (laughs) that it's this guy, this is the guy, like this is the guy who has the most colonial attitude of anyone in the game. And it's the guy who like his own history is by implication. When you look at him, listen to his accent, look, you know, what's his name, you know, his name is a combination of elements. His accent is the way he looks. He's clearly the product of, of some sort of colonial interaction, right? Yeah. And I think that that's something that, that Sid enjoyed. You know? Yeah. Well, and I love how Star Trek can kind of touch on those issues in interesting and new ways that we haven't thought of before. And that's always so great about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, one of the things that's, that's true also was like in the 90s, like 
you know, we were closer to colonialism too, you know, closer to Vietnam, closer to like a lot of the, Af- the, 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 the revolutions in Africa and other places. And, and it was sort of like part of what Michael wanted to bring in, you know, to question. I think Deep Space Nine is the first show that, look, all, all sort of Star Treks in some ways are about America, right? And I think TNG and um, the original series both sort of came from that sort of 50s view of the United States as like the, we're the Federation, we're here to help, you know? And Deep Space Nine was like, well, we were a post-Vietnam show in a way that Next Generation really wasn't because it was just sort of a continuation of the same ethos. So we got to play with those aspects too. And that's part of what this episode's about too, you know? Robert? Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me. Yes, and it's great to revisit that episode. It really did turn out very well. I was, you know, I haven't watched it all the way through in a bit, and it's nice. I had to put it on the subtitles because I was yapping the whole way through, but it was fun to watch. It, it's, 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 Are it's you, uh, what are you working on these days? You got anything to, anything to plug? Uh, well, I mean, by my books, I wrote uh, three young adult novels. Um, nice. The last one came out last year around this time. They're for uh, like 10 to 14-year-old middle readers. Um, and they're like high fantasy with goblins and magic and all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm proud of those. So people should go, you know, use your unused Audible credits on them. The guy who does the voice is pretty good. That's awesome. Uh, and then, um, you know, I wrapped on Prodigal Son right before COVID. Uh, and now that show's canceled. And But I am working on something. I, I just can't say what it is, unfortunately. Like... Sure. I'm adapting a thing for some people. It will show yes. up eventually on a network. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, I really can't say much about it. <laughs> it's fantasy, good. though. It's high, it's high fantasy. So Sweet. Uh, I like it. I'm not even sure I should, I should be saying that. But whatever. <laughs> that's what it is. It's, it's a high fantasy thing. So it, it should be a lot of fun. Just on the early stages, our room starts next month. And, you know, it's like Bible and pre pre-concept and all yeah. working, working with the other writer uh, my friend and I are working on together. So it's really just like, you know, we've just started within the last few weeks. Um, so it'll be fun. And you won't see it for like two years. <laughs> yeah. Maybe three. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's the way TV works yeah. these days, man. Not, you know, it's not the way it was back in the day where we would work on something and you'd see it six months later. Now it's like you write the whole series and then you shoot it, you know, and then you air it and then maybe you do another one, you know, or maybe not. Maybe it's like Lovecraft country and you never have <laughs> it. Yeah. It's, tough. it's a, it's a crazy sad, business these days. That's like, you know, three years of someone's life and, yeah. and uh, at least three years of someone's life and yeah. you get eight episodes out of her, 10 episodes. Yeah. So anyway, yes. So yes, stay tuned. But in the meantime, <laughs> read my books, uh, buy my books. Uh, watch my old stuff. I still get paid a lot of money. I still get some nice residual checks from DJ's Space Nine. So thank you all for yeah. watching. Watch some elementary. We're, I'm proud of that show too. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's all I got to plug right now. <laughs> that's Where awesome. do we find you on social media? Oh, uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, so my handle on Twitter is writergeekrhw. So the word writer, the word geek. That's what I am. And um, RHW, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I usually tweet a few, you know, I tweet stuff about TV writing mostly. Thankfully, I don't have to tweet a lot of politics anymore, so you don't, you'll, you'll be spared that stuff. 
uh, I might tell you to go get a virus, you know, go get a freaking uh, vaccine. That yes. that's about the extent of what the get a vaccine. Very important. Get a vaccine, Very people. Important. Seriously, like my mom was a nurse. <laughs> you know, like get a damn vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good thing. Vaccine. Very good thing. Bashir would tell you. Bashir would tell you to get a vaccine. Bashir would be like. Bashir would be like pestering you. He'd be like walking up and down the promenade with like a bag full of needles, like a hypo spray, being like, "Have you been vaccinated yet? Have you been vaccinated yet?" You know, Bashir would be all over you. So go get. So go get your vaccine, Bashir. Bashir says get back. <laughs> Who would have thought that that was the follow-up episode to uh, that one? That, oh, I oh uh, uh, Babel, where everyone gets no, no, the... The, um, ah, the one where he creates the vaccine for the... Oh, the, oh, oh, the quickening. The, the quickening, yes. That's such quickening. a good episode. It ends yeah. on such a high note of, I have a vaccine now. And he didn't think there was a sequel to that word. No one wanted to take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one... The quickening, I've got the vaccine. And everyone's like, yeah, I'd rather take my chances with the quickening. <laughs> the worst. Uh, get your vaccines, that. people, get please. Vaccines. Um, all right. Well, Robert Hewitt Wolf, thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely fantastic. Um, to all you listeners out there, thank you for being here. We want to thank uh, Bill Ritter, our sound engineer, and people at Electric Entertainment, especially our executive producers, uh, Mark A. Ullman and Dean Devlin. Um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, Inglorious Trek or on Facebook and Instagram at Inglorious Trek Sports. So for Lisa Klink and myself, thank you for being here and keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed. Instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.